Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. Morning, left breast. Morning, right breast. So how's it going over there? Great. I mean, life is great until the monster shows up. He's not a monster. He's a baby, and he needs us for... Oh, here he comes. No, not me. Take her. Take her. Ow, 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 Stay ow. calm, Lefty. You'll get through this. Help. This is enhanced interrogation. Ow. This is a stress position. He's almost done. Just a few more seconds. Come on. It's not that bad. I want to speak to my attorney. There. He's gone. He's never really gone. He's an enormous, marauding predator. And we're like this little village. It's kind of weird that he seems to prefer you. Wait, why is that weird? Well, for one thing, I'm I'm larger, so... Larger? You're not larger. I am totally bigger than you. It doesn't work that way. We're the same size. We have to be. We're on the same person. Have you noticed that the person who's not a baby seems to like me better? Yeah, you're welcome to that. It's disgusting. I feel dirty just looking at what goes on over there. I wonder sometimes if you're really cut out for this life. Tell me about it. I want it to be a gallbladder. When you're a gallbladder, you just punch the clock, you do your job every day, maybe you get a stone once in a blue moon. But no, I had to be this thing that gets stared at, commented on, milked by a voracious screaming devil baby covered with other people's saliva. How did my life turn into this? Calm down. You know, she's thinking about getting saline implants down the road. I get seasick. Doesn't she know that? Maybe you should just relax and listen to this show. It's about us. And now, if he can't have Jessica Rabbit, he doesn't want anybody. Colin McEnroe. Today we are indeed going to talk about the breast. October is National Breast Cancer Awareness Month. Breast cancer is the second leading cause of cancer death in women in the United States after lung cancer. Uh, We're going to talk about it that way. We're also going to talk about it the other way, too, as you might have heard me say before the news. Breasts have a very curious duality. You know, they're fun bags and they're time bombs. Uh, And uh, there's a happy medium in between those two visions of them as well. We'll look for that. I have to quickly tell, I don't usually do this. I'm going to tell you a quick story here from my days uh, of magazine writing before I even introduce our wonderful guests. So I used to write for Cosmopolitan years ago. At one point, they assigned me this article called Why Men Like Breasts. And so it's like a harder article to write than you might think. Anyway, I write the article. I couldn't even tell you what's in it. But um, this was a long time ago. So then years go by. And, you know, oh, I don't know what it's like now, but oh, the Oprah Winfrey magazine. That's like a really great magazine to write for. At least it was when I was doing a lot of magazine writing. You always kind of hope maybe. You'll get an assignment from, oh, and I'd long, long since left Cosmopolitan. So I get this email from somebody at O Magazine saying, are you the Colin McEnroe who used to write for Cosmopolitan? And I said, yeah, that is me. I wrote back. I said, that's me. I'm getting kind of excited. And they wrote back. They said, you wrote the article, Why Men Like Breasts? We have this article we'd like you to do. And my heart is just sinking. It's like, please, is that what I'm going to be known for? And they wanted me to do an article about whether men feel differently about surgically enhanced breasts than they do about natural breasts. And I was a freelance magazine writer, and I don't turn down a lot of work in those days. I turned that down. You know what? I just, like, you know, somebody else is going to look me up five years from now, and that's what they're going to find. I just, I'm not going to write about this anymore. So um, 
So anyway, that's my baggage. I thought I should dump it on the table. Now we've got some great guests for you here. Florence Williams, author of Breasts, A Natural and Unnatural History. Her podcast, Breasts Unbound, you can find on Audible starting in December. Her latest book, The Nature Fix, Why Nature Makes Us Happier, Healthier, and More Creative, will be out in February. But right now we are, in fact, talking about that book about breasts, which was one of the 100 notable books uh, of the New York Times uh, book review for its year. Uh, joining me, in st- she's uh, at the studios of WAMU in D.C. Joining me in studio is Dr. Christine Risk, a breast surgeon, uh, director of the Comprehensive Women's Health Center at St. Francis Hospital and Medical Center. You know, in the first segment, we're going to talk a little bit more about the the way breasts are kind of loaded up culturally with all kinds of uh, erotic and evaluative expectations. But there's no way to kind of unpack that or take it apart from the other side of this. So, you know, I was thinking maybe because being a man, this is something I've never thought about before, but reading um, Florence Williams's book, which has a lot of stuff about ways in which things can go wrong with breasts, ways in which breasts are like these sponges that that absorb an awful lot of very dangerous elements in the environment. I'm going to ask you both the same question. Um, okay, so I'll start with you, uh, Dr. Christine Risk. Um, if, if I were a woman um, and I had any kind of risk factor for breast cancer in my family uh, and being somewhat neurotic, uh, which I assume I still would be as a woman, um, I might come to you and say, you know, why why don't I go the Angelina Jolie route? Why don't I get a prophylactic mastectomy? These things are dangerous anyway. You could probably give me something that kind of looked like them or somebody could probably afterwards. I mean, I know it cost a lot of money, but like what if I saved my tips or something, you know? And, I, you know, why wouldn't I just get these things removed so they couldn't kill me? Uh, and I assume with modern modern cosmetic surgery, you could give me something anyway that, that looked okay. Um, I want to talk to both of you about this, but uh, I'll start with you, Dr. Risk. What kind of conversation would you have with me about that? Well, thank you so much, Colin, for having me on this afternoon. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a really great question that you're asking. Uh, and it's one that we often have uh, with women over at the Women's Center, particularly after a diagnosis. Mm-hmm. So it's really important to discern, um, you know, the average risk woman and what her risks are and what benefit there would be from from potentially uh, removing both breasts. And that's actually a very, very different conversation than a conversation with a woman who has a diagnosis and potentially a woman like Angelina Jolie who has a genetic mutation. So for those of us that like numbers out there, um, the average risk woman, meaning someone without you know a family history or, or other personal uh, risk factors, lifetime risk is about 12%. So there's a good chance you're not going to get breast cancer, or one in eight women uh, over the course uh, of their life. So the risk is relatively low. Now, that jumps up very significantly when we talk about folks like Angelina Jolie who have a genetic mutation. Depending on which one they have, that risk jumps up significantly, upwards of 50 to 80%. So that's lifetime risk, uh, Mm. of course, of getting a breast cancer. So that's a very, very different number from that 12% I just quoted you. Um, and so in those, you know, particular populations, those are the folks that we will often recommend or at least have the conversation with them regarding what we call risk-reducing surgery. Mm-hmm. And that cuts their risk by over 90%. Mm. They can still get breast cancer, but man, oh, man, it's significantly reduced. And I think it's really important to stress to women that it is reconstructive surgery. Um, mm. You know, it, it's not like just getting a pair of breast implants. And I think that's a real 
point of, of discussion with women when a woman has a mastectomy with reconstruction. Mm-hmm. That is a very, very different situation and a very different um, sort of, uh, you know, post-op recovery and, and even cosmetically uh, very different sometimes than, than from a woman who, who's having uh, augmentation for cosmetic reasons. So Florence Williams, that's sort of, uh, you know, the medical side of it. I mean, the other part of the conversation that you might have with somebody about that would also be about all the ways in which breast function in a woman's life, ranging from feeding a child, if you decide to go that route, to everything that as a culture we either project onto them or find latent in them in terms of aesthetics. And that's something that at the beginning of the book uh, you write about. And it's, I guess, one of the real questions. I guess if you were having that conversation with me, that's one of the things you'd want to talk to me about. What would you tell me? Yes, it is. Hi, Colin. Hi, Hi, Christine. Such a pleasure to be here with both of you. Um, I do think that, you know, in this culture especially, we tend to look at breasts sort of one of two ways. There's kind of the good breast and the bad breast. There's the sexy breast and there's the cancer killer breast. Um, and the, the point I really want to make in my book is that breasts are actually so much more than that. Mm. They're so much more complex. Um, they're amazing, sort of miraculous, highly evolved organs. I particularly you know, like to geek out on sort of the history of evolution of lactation, which is so undersung in our culture. Like, we don't really acknowledge that lactation is what enabled mammals, for example, to take over the planet, you know, after after dinosaurs. Um, so I, I think lactation is really cool. I think the breast is this incredible organ. It's so dynamic. It changes over a woman's lifetime. It changes every month. It changes every week. And I think until we can look at the breast, you know, in this more sort of clear-eyed way, we're never really going to be able to kind of deal with the complexity of it. Well, let, let's stay on that evolutionary question for a second. So, um, Florence, uh, we have raccoons who live on our property, and uh, I note <laughs> Sorry. that. Sorry. Yeah, well, no, that's okay. We made our peace with them. But I, you know, I note that when Sabrina, one of the raccoons, uh, is uh, when her babies are younger, um, she she had her mammary glands become more developed, more pronounced. You can see. Uh, what she's going to nurse her babies with. But she didn't have breasts, right? Because, I mean, one of the things you write about in your, in your book is that, you know, humans are even unique among primates in having breasts as opposed to something with a purely mammary function. Yeah, that's right. We have these incredibly unusual um, mammary glands, really, in the animal kingdom. I mean, most other primates, they just get these small swellings while they're lactating. And then, you know, when their baby grows up, the breasts go away, they recede. But we have breasts starting in puberty. We have them our entire adult lives. And so, you know, that has begged some interesting questions. Like, why? Why were we kind of blessed <laughs> or cursed or however you want to put it? Why Why were we so lucky to have breasts? And, and it's a surprisingly um, kind of um, – it, it, it's a surprisingly controversial debate, actually. Right. I mean, it, it, it doesn't necessarily make any sense unless, uh, I don't know, I think one thing that you, one idea that you uh, suggest is that in some ways it's it, it might have been on the grasslands of Africa among our hominid ancestors, kind of a signal, right? A signal to the male, to, to the most uh, frequently reproducing male that so this particular female is going to be able to feed babies um, so go ahead and uh, try to get her pregnant. Uh, and that whoever those females were who looked that way, who sent that signal that was attractive to 
you know, a high reproducing male, their genetic structure got passed on generation to generation. That's what evolutionists call adaptive. So even though breasts seem kind of maladaptive in some ways, like it's probably easier to be a raccoon, um, maybe they're adaptive that way. Well, I think you're right that that's kind of the dominant theory out there, that breasts are a sexual signal, you know, that they must be conveying information to potential mates. Um, The problem with that theory is uh, it's impossible to prove, Mm -hmm. for one thing. And why would we be the only mammals who use the breast as a sexual signal? And um, what's interesting is that more recently, a lot of feminist scholars have come forward and said, you know, we're not really looking at how the breast functions. And, and of course, there are some men who are totally obsessed with breasts and, you know, are sort of justifying that obsession by saying, you know, this is an evolutionary kind of uh, signal. But, but they say, you know, maybe it has to do with how we breastfeed or maybe it has to do with how we deposit or collect fat. Uh, and so these, these women have come forward in the last couple of decades. And, and I actually think their arguments are really compelling because if you think about it, the human infant has much higher fat requirements than any other primate. We, as human females, have higher fat requirements in order to even reach puberty, in order to gestate, and then in order to lactate. And it turns out that where there are a lot of estrogen receptors, like in our breasts, there's fat. And it makes sense that fat is being deposited in the breast. So it's kind of a more practical and, I'll admit, less sexy explanation. Um, Dr. Christine Risk, uh, you are a breast surgeon. You look at breasts uh, all day. Uh, It must occur to you to wonder, what are these things? How come we're not more like raccoons? What's your answer to that? Uh, You know, I'm just loving listening to this conversation, and and, uh, I think it's absolutely fantastic that people are, you know, really starting to open up and have these discussions. Interestingly, the breast is a modified sweat gland. Uh, I was just having that conversation with uh, two of our medical students, and so, you know, and I was saying to them, gosh, I guess you really wouldn't think they were all that attractive if you take a moment and think, gosh, this is a modified sweat gland. Um, so, you know, I completely agree with Florence. That complexity transcends so much, not only socially and historically and from an evolutionary trans, uh, point of view, but also what we see, you know, even from breast imaging to breast exam to breast ex- diseases. Um, there's tremendous complexity there. And, uh, uh, I, you know, I, I definitely think that's part of what keeps us on our toes and, and makes our job so interesting is there's tremendous complexity and individuality with, with each and every woman mm-hmm. and, and her breasts. So when you say it's a modified sweat gland, are you saying that it's kind of structurally a lot like a sweat gland? It, but it a- yeah. absolutely is. Yeah. In fact, in the OR, uh, a lot of times that we will, you know, um, encounter, you know, the appearance or sometimes even the smell uh, of a modified sweat gland. And, and I'll always kind of chuckle and say, so who didn't take the shower today? Mm. Um, and uh, that's that's not at all uncommon during breast surgery to almost have that that um, odor uh, of a uh, sweat gland because, in fact, that's what it is. And that's what you're, you're dealing with and operating on. No, uh, on the most sort of, I don't know how to say it, but the, the, the lowest level of talking about and thinking about breast. I mean, we're thinking about breast in this, I think, very interesting evolutionary, uh, medical, biological, and, and somewhat abstract way. But then there's sort of the way that men think and talk about breasts. And fortunately or unfortunately, I would say very unfortunately, you have a man who actually could be president, uh, who actually <laughs> likes to talk about breasts a lot. We're going to hear, this is him talking, I think it's sort of three different clips of him on, of course, the Howard Stern Show. I view a, a person who's flat-chested is very hard to be a 10. How do the breasts look? The breasts are okay. Okay, well, that's important. I think that the, the boob job is terrible. You know, they look like two light bulbs coming out of a body. 
Yes, that man might actually appoint Supreme Court justices. However, <laughs> um, so Florence, and actually the, in the middle clip of that, actually Howard Stern has actually asked uh, Donald Trump uh, a hypothetical question, kind of a thought experiment. What if his beautiful wife Melania were in a car accident and her face was disfigured and her eye was disfigured and she, um, her arm was badly hurt, uh, permanently hurt? Uh, how would he feel about her? And her, his question is, how do the breasts look? Um, now, obviously, <laughs> though he's running for president, <laughs> he represents kind of the lowest form of evolution about this. But this is, I mean, this some version of that conversation could be heard uh, in a lot of locker rooms and sports bars and other places that, that men uh, congregate. And one thing you say in your book is, uh, although it, ha- it wasn't ever thus, and in fact the aesthetics cha- standards have changed, I mean, it's been a long conversation. It's been a centuries-long conversation about the female breast. Maybe you want to say a little more about that. Yeah, sure. Thanks, Colin. And I, I'm so glad you played those clips because I, I do think they're revealing. And in fact, you, you, there's another one out there that says he thinks anyone who any woman who would ever consider breast reduction surgery is crazy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, you know, in, in, in his view, the larger, the better. And it's, it certainly is entertaining. One thing about breasts, and I make this point in my book, too, is that they are funny. You know, mm-hmm. as a topic, breasts can be funny. Uh, and I, I think Trump is, is certainly, um, you know, playing into that. But but I also think it's very revealing that this is a man who clearly objectifies women's body parts. And certainly a lot of men are so interested in breasts that it's, it's kind of, you know, the only thing they notice. Um, what this tells us, uh, you know, is that is that maybe there's more that's not being considered. Mm-hmm. And what kind of lesson are you sort of, you know, passing along to your daughters? Uh, you know, I think raises other interesting questions. But there are studies out there that show that um, the bigger the breast that a man likes, the more he tends to objectify women. And I, I know that's a generalization, but it is based on a study <laughs> that took place in the UK. And it just says that that men who are more attracted to larger breasts tend to objectify women. Um, the, uh, another study, though, that I think is very interesting shows that, in fact, it's kind of a myth that all men love big breasts. In fact, there are studies out there that show that there are most most men prefer medium-sized breasts, and there are a lot of men who prefer small breasts. And in fact, there are men out there who really just don't feel that strongly about breasts one way or another. You know, they're leg men. So I think these are all things to keep in mind as we live in this incredibly mythologized era of the breast. Well, you know, I, I want to just stay with this for a second, and I'll put on uh, a, a, a radical feminist uh, costume and say— Go for it. Let's, let's also say that everything that you just said and everything that Trump just said and all these kinds of things, they amount to a, a way in which one half of the human species can be kind of graded like eggs, right? You know, it's like you're, you're a this, you're a that. You know, we can use bra sizes or just words like big and medium and small that, you know, there's in, in that you don't have that kind of information uh, about men's penises that basically, you know, a, a man is much more likely to sort of be able to surmise things visually, even if he doesn't see the exposed breast about a woman's breast. And, and men are pretty careful about keeping a large amount of penis information to themselves. Be, and I assume that there's a power thing there. It seems to me there's a power dynamic. Like we don't want to be graded like eggs. You know, but we want to be able to grade you like eggs. So you're nodding. So you have to talk. Now. You have to know, Christine Risk, you're nodding. She's just putting two thumbs up. I don't know. You don't want to elaborate on that. Yeah. Oh, sure I will. <laughs> but I want to give Florence the opportunity yeah. first. <laughs> Certainly. 
Um, well, yeah, I mean, obviously, you know, I think as a mother of a of an adolescent daughter, you mm. know, the last thing I want her thinking about is, you know, how her body doesn't measure up. Right. Mm. It's just um, such a waste of, you know, resources, a waste of effort. Um, you know, I want her to cultivate, you know, her mind and her creativity and her imagination and her athleticism. I want all girls to grow up doing this. You know, and I think we're doing such a disservice, not only to girls, but to boys, you know, when we um, project a certain image of a breast and say, this is what's beautiful, you know, go find it. It's just not constructive. It isn't, but it seems inevitable, too. It seems like it's just sort of built into our culture. It's built into, Dr. Christina, it's into our built into our fine arts. You go to... Uh, 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 you know, a, a gallery and see a Renaissance depiction of Venus. Um, some decision will be have been made about her breast size. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and I, I will uh, try not to get on my feminist soapbox too much here. Yeah, go ahead. But you are you are kind of poking a stick at me. So, <laughs> um, but you know, it, it gets back to this 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 double standard that we seem to have where. You know, young girls, right about the age of eight, nine, something happens where all of a sudden it's how you look. It's are you pretty? It's are you liked? It's are you popular? It's do the boys, you know, give you any attention? Somehow that some somehow supersedes, you know, are you smart? Are you good at sports? Are you, you know, talented? Can you sing and dance? And so, you know, it's, it just starts very early and it only gets stronger and a more powerful message to young girls and young women that we have these unrealistic expectations of what we're supposed to look like and what femininity is and somehow that ties into our value uh, to us as human beings which is which is such a detrimental message to be sending young women and I I completely agree with Florence we're also sending you know little boys and, and young men the wrong the wrong uh, information here and selling them short as well well Florence one of the things you try to explore in your book is how much of this is a lot of bad messaging that we're sending to boys and indisputably we are doing that but how much of it is there and how much of it is just wired in you know and I, I did find the not that they're dispositive in that way but some of the experiments that you looked at some of the experiments that you read about in the book um, including the, I think are they Australian these like father and son researchers where they you, you, <laughs> that you was want, in New Zealand New Zealand yeah, yeah. you want to tell, tell, like I thought the thing with the um, the eye measuring equipment the sort of the thing that um, measures the actual direction of gaze w- was kind of an interesting story you want yes, to quickly tell yes, that one yeah sure I, I did spend some time looking at the social research in in this topic and and there actually there is a whole field of people looking at sort of body gaze and body preferences, um, sort of ideals of beauty. Um, This one particular researcher in New Zealand uh, has an experiment with an eye tracking machine. And what he'll do is he'll put college men, um, you know, to sit in this machine, which sort of looks like what you use at at an optometrist's office. You know, you stick your eyes, you know, through these lenses. You look at images of women with different sized breasts and you pick out your preference. And um, what he's found is that this kind of notion, this mythology of a universal desire for large breasts is is just complete hocus. It's, um, it's just not true. He's found that in different cultures, there are men who like small breasts. There are some cultures that like, you know, oblong breasts. There are some cultures where they prefer dark pigmentation, some where they prefer light pigmentation. And, and as I said before, there are some cultures that just don't really care about the breast. You know, they're much more interested in, you know, the eroticism of the foot or of the neck, you know, or of the belly button or whatever it is. Is. And so I think it is really important to remember that, um, you know, the sort of Donald Trump worldview is not an, at all inevitable. 
Uh, and in, even in Western art, you know, there are plenty of statues and, and, and even Venus, you know, yeah. is, is where the women are depicted with very small breasts. Um, so, so I just think, you know, thinking that, that this is inevitable is, is um, you know, kind of a trap. Mm-hmm. And, and that's really the reason I think I've spent so much time, you know, writing and talking and thinking about the breast is that I do think there's hope that we can, you know, kind of teach our children differently and kind of appreciate this organ, you know, for the miraculous and mysterious thing it is. Um, we're going to take a break pretty soon. Yeah, I just actually I'm, I was trying to find this quote today, um, but I can't I couldn't locate it. Uh, a quote by the uh, anthropologist Ernest Becker, who says that every erotic cue is essentially arbitrary, that the things that we think are essential erotic cues are as arbitrary as the yellow stripe on the back of a snake. I think that's what he says. Uh, Hmm. And that sort of feeds into what you're saying there, that it doesn't... Although I do, I will say that the experiment that they did with that that eye measurement machine, where in fact it seemed as though men, at least the men from that culture that they were checking, when they looked at, they would look at pictures of a woman and they would sort of use breasts as home base. Uh, Yes, they they do like to look at it. Yeah, Yeah, they look at the breast, (laughs) then they look at the face, then they look at the breast, then they look at the other part of the body, (laughs) then they look back at the breast. It was like, that was sort of your free parking space or something. Uh, Breasts are so cute. They're nice to look at. Yes, they sure are. (laughs) All right. Yeah, we wouldn't want to give you any other impression. All right. We have to take a little break. We'll come back with more of this conversation. We are going to get back into the world of medicine next. All right, we're back. Uh, we're talking uh, about breasts today. Uh, we have been talking about them uh, in one context. Now we'll kind of move to another. Our guests are Florence Williams, author of Breasts, A Natural and Unnatural History. It's out in paperback. Uh, and she has a podcast called Breasts Unbound on Audible, de- debuting in December. You can't get it yet. You can maybe pre-order it or something. I guess you can't do that with podcasts. Uh, Dr. Christine Risk is with us in studio, a breast surgeon, a director of the Comprehensive Women's Health Center at St. Francis Hospital and Medical Center. So as I said at the beginning of the show, um, if I were a woman and I were reading the literature that's out there right now, Dr. Risk, I would be worried about uh, what could happen to me because breasts, as I understand it, and I understand more of it now reading Florence's book, Breasts are kind of like canaries in the coal mine, right? If there's a dangerous toxin that can get into human tissue, breasts are often the human tissue that that stuff's going to wind up in. They're, I think uh, Florence says they're kind of like sponges for that kind of stuff. Maybe you can elaborate on that a little bit. Sure. So, you know, breasts and breast cancers, um, you know, it's such a complex interplay and web. And um, a lot of times when we see women who've been recently diagnosed with breast cancer, they'll say, Why? How did this happen? Mm. I eat right. I exercise. I don't smoke. I don't have a family history. And quite honestly, a lot of times we can't exactly pin the exact reason why this occurred, but we certainly do know that it's a very, very complex interplay of a variety of factors, many of which we actually know uh, and some, of course, which we don't. Um, But I often describe it as it's the perfect storm. It's like a hurricane. Well, you know, why don't we have hurricanes every day in Connecticut or, or you know, in, in Florida? Well, that's because a variety of factors have to sort of interplay and occur sort of simultaneously and synergistically. And so similarly, that's often what we understand and what we see uh, as far as women are concerned. Interestingly, the, the folks that uh, do carry genetic uh, mutations like Angelina Jolie 
you know, their risk of getting breast cancer, we didn't say it was 100%. We mm. said it was somewhere between 50 to 80%. And mm. I'm particularly fascinated with that group because here's a group of people that have a gene that theoretically has predetermined they're going to get breast cancer. Mm-hmm. And yet they don't uniformly all. Mm-hmm. There's a good at least 10 to 15, maybe even 20% that don't. So clearly there is a complex interplay and something has protected them. Uh, despite their genetic uh, composition. So that just gets to the point, I think, that it's a very, very complex interplay of a variety of factors. Um, I want to come back to that notion uh, with Florence in just a second. But, Dr. Risk, the other thing that's happening, I think Florence in her book says something to the effect that it was a disease that your grandmother got. Um, It seems as though people get it younger. You know, I'm so glad that you and Florence are are elaborating and and bringing up that issue exactly. Um, You know, numbers lag. You know, by the time, you know, certainly we all have to report to the state uh, every woman that we diagnose and treat with breast cancer. But, of course, those numbers take time to to actually be, um, you know, analyzed and then reported. So I I think, you know, the, the great majority of us are seeing almost a downshift. Um, We're seeing a reasonably large relatively large number of women in their mid-20s, late-20s, 30s um, with breast cancer. And and believe it or not, many of them do not have a family history. And I think, you know, that that's a little bit on the alarming side, and nobody really has a good answer as to why this is occurring. Um, and, you know, that's that data that we're seeing now in real time is going to take, you know, a little bit of time, a good five to ten years by the time it's collected analyzed and reported. And so I think we're sort of seeing it now in real time, and it's certainly alarming. So, uh, Florence, uh, as a writer, um, you know, and as a journalist, I know that there's a frustration we sometimes have with that long lag between pure research, applied research, and then really applied medical science and medical treatment. I mean, it's it's a long trail. But as somebody who's curious uh, about this, you got very interested in, well, like, you know, what kinds of stuff do we accumulate uh, just walking through our lives, eating, drinking, being people? And so you used, I think, both you and yourself as kind of— uh, human canaries in the coal mine, uh, just to sort of see like what kind of stuff was turning up in your urine. What'd you find out? Yeah, that's true. I did a little bit of an experiment um, with myself and also uh, with my daughter, who was um, about seven or eight at the time. And we wanted to look specifically at a class of chemicals known to disrupt the hormone system. Um, you know, we know so little about the causes of breast cancer. But um, we know that there probably is something going on um, with the hormones. One of the reasons the breast is so sensitive to these chemicals may be because of all those hormone receptors. And, you know, we know that women, um, you know, who have kind of been living with their own estrogen for long periods of time are more likely to get breast cancer. So women who go through puberty earlier. Um, Because early puberty is such a well-known risk factor for breast cancer, there are a lot of scientists now looking um, at early puberty. Like, for example, we know that even early puberty is more common than it was even just a generation ago. Um, And so I was really interested to to sort of see what my daughter, what kind of chemicals she had in her bloodstream and in her her urine also. Um, And so we looked at chemicals that are commonly found in soaps and in shampoos, um, in plastic bottles. Some of these are chemicals some of your listeners may have heard about, like BPA, bisphenol A. 
um, and phthalates, um, a chemical called triclosan, which actually the EPA just came out and uh, prohibited from common soaps just a couple of weeks ago. Uh, and it turns out that my daughter and I actually did have pretty high levels compared to other people our age, you know, for some of these chemicals. And then we did a little experiment where we tried to kind of detox. Uh, you know, we didn't drink canned soda. We didn't uh, eat a lot of food out of plastic. We didn't take bubble baths or use nail polish. And in fact, our levels for a lot of these chemicals plummeted really dramatically. So that was eye-opening because it, it just shows how readily, you know, so many of these substances in our environment get into our bodies and get into our bloodstreams. And then, of course, the question is, well, what's it doing there and what do we do about it? Yeah, I love the woman in your book. I think she might be a friend of yours. You just kind of walks through your kitchen and goes, "Well, this isn't that, and that's and what does that cutting board? Does it say antimicrobial? <laughs> because that means it's got triclosan in it." Or <laughs> yeah, it can make you crazy. You know, once you start kind of identifying all the sources for these chemicals in your home, it can make you really neurotic, which is also not good for your health. <laughs> but Doctor Risk, with that notion of the complex interplay, uh, um, it, it's the reason that you as a doctor can't say, well, if you just do that, if you just go on the Florence Williams diet, you know, and make sure your urine's pretty clean uh, for all of this crap, uh, you'll be fine. Because you don't know that, right? No, no, we don't. But you know what we do know is that the, the um, lowest rate of breast cancer in the world is in rural China. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot that's very different in rural China compared to the way most of us are living. Not only is that environmentally, but it also gets back to what Florence was saying about puberty and um, the age of menarche, or sort of when young girls start having their periods. Interestingly, in rural China, that average age was 17. Mm-hmm. So once wow. again, yeah, so once again, we have that, again, that complex interplay. Their environment is pretty different from what we're all exposed to, and yet also um, they're, they're the estrogen, the fat, the mm-hmm. hormones, the um, you know, starting of periods very early, menarche, you know, in the eight, nine-year-olds that we're seeing in this country. You know, 10, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, the average age was about 12, 13, and we're definitely seeing that start to come back down towards 10, 11, and, and certainly... As Florence pointed out, you know, we do know risk factors include early periods and late menopause because, again, you've got all this unopposed estrogen in a woman's system. Interestingly, when women are pregnant, the breasts love to be pregnant, and pregnancy, particularly pregnancy before the age of 30, is actually protective uh, to breast cancer uh, risk. And, again, we definitely have those women that come in and say, I breastfed. I had all my kids before I was 30. Again, they did everything right, quote unquote. Um, that doesn't buy you a, a you know, free pass uh, out of this, but certainly those that do have those risk factors you know, warrant closer observation. You know, um, Florence, in your book, and uh, we're no way we're going to do justice to this in a few minutes, but you really sort of, get, I, I hadn't really thought too much about the equally complex equation that goes on with breastfeeding. And the, the way that you kind of set it up in your book is, well, on the one hand, if my breasts are these things that are repositories for things that they can very easily pick up in their environment, uh, things that are potentially carcinogenic, uh, if they wind up in my breast, you know, is that an even healthy thing to have my uh, infant child feeding on? Am I just kind of, this is a sort of toxic pipeline, uh, like a plastic hose dispensing water from your refrigerator, <laughs> as your friend would tell you, you know? Uh, on the other hand, there are all kinds of health benefits uh, that seem to obtain to people who are breastfed um, and, and and negative health consequences for people uh, who are raised on formula. So it's kind of like, you know, you, you, you can't win. Or I don't know, where did, where did you come out on all that? 
Well, I I love talking about lactation. I'm a huge fan of lactation. Um, I definitely come down on the uh, breast milk is best, um, you know, side of the fence. But I was shocked when I was breastfeeding to learn that there were toxic chemicals showing up in breast milk in women around the world. And so I decided to test my own breast milk. I shipped it off to a lab in Germany. And sure enough, my breast milk that I had been feeding two children at this point came back positive for things like flame retardants and jet fuel ingredients um, and pesticides. So that was sobering and disappointing because here we have this kind of perfectly evolved food for the human infant. We know it helps protect infants against all kinds of diseases, against bacterial infections, against uh, allergies. And we've taken this perfect food and we've compromised it. But what I learned is that formula also has lots of industrial chemicals in it, Mm -hmm. sadly. Um, And and it looks like breast milk is actually still protective for a lot of these kids, um, despite, you know, these really small amounts of chemicals. But I think we still have a lot to learn about what these chemicals mean for the long-term health of our kids. Um, We do know that that just the act of breastfeeding is also protective for the mother and also lowers her future breast cancer risk. So, you know, it's a a really complicated equation. but but I think, you know, breastfeeding is still, uh, you know, it's just still this tremendous, wonderful um, activity. And the substance itself has these qualities and components that we haven't really been able to replicate in formula. You know, uh, Dr. Christine Risks, uh, I, this is about the fourth time during the show that one or the other of you has said, we still have a lot to learn. There's a lot we don't know. There's a, and, and one of the things that Florence says in her book, she quotes researchers as saying, you know, breasts in some ways are a little bit of the redheaded stepchild of the research world that, you know, they may not get the kind of research focus that, say, the liver does, maybe because everybody has livers and only half of us have breasts. I, I don't know. Do you feel some frustration just in terms of how many things that you don't? I mean, it just seems weird in the era of modern science where we assume progress is, if not a constant, at least, you know, a pretty strong upward curve that you'd be treating 20-year-old or breast cancer patients in their 20s, you know, more now than you would have years ago. And we don't entirely know why. Mm-hmm. Definitely. You know, and I would have to say, I would extrapolate to medicine in general. If you think about most of the diseases that that, that plague us uh, as a country, um, you know, a lot of what we do in medicine is f- fixing or trying to fix the problem. But when you get to the nuts and the bolts of it or the gr- nitty gritty of it of why did something occur, that's where modern day medicine can often fall pretty short. Mm-hmm. You know, seizures, uh, hearing you know, def- you know, deficiencies, um, so many things that, you know, outside of the realm of, of uh, breast disease, there's not a lot that we actually know as to the why something occurred. Um, but we're hopefully a lot better at the fixing of the problem. And that's where a lot of research tends to focus, whether it's breast-related or, you know, liver-related, as, as you give the example. So I would say, though, not to sound entirely pessimistic, there's a lot that we've learned just in the last 10 to 15 years. Um, we've made tremendous strides and in, in, uh, as far as therapies and as far as, you know, earlier detection. And so I, I don't want to paint an entirely dismal, uh, you know, picture of, well, gosh, you know, we think this incredibly complex interplay and we're not entirely sure what's causing it. Um, th- that's, you know, somewhat true. But I would also point to the fact that we've made remarkable strides as far as earlier detection and improving survival and cure rates. 
All right. Although, you know, that notwithstanding, Florence, I got the feeling that you did talk to researchers who were essentially saying to you that if men got breast cancer, we know a hell of a lot more about it by now. Uh, yeah, I think there is a feeling of that for sure. And I, I think there's still this sense, too, that because as a culture, as a society, we sexualize and sort of hypersexualize the breast, um, you know, that I think some researchers do kind of feel, um, you know, a little bit of a taboo or, uh, you know, some disincentives, you know, toward toward really, um, you know, sort of learning the complexities of, of how the breast functions. You know, we only just recently learned even how many milk ducts there are. You know, there's so much we don't know about lactation. Um, but I, I also I also ran into a lot of people in the activist community who are sort of you know feeling that we've spent so many research dollars, so many resource dollars, so many um, you know dressing up in pink ribbons uh, kind of energy talking about detection, which really means mammography. Um, you know, rather than looking at the causes of breast cancer to begin with, because by the time you detect breast cancer, you know, it's too late. You already have it. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's wonderful that the survival rates are, um, you know, improving so much. And that's a huge accomplishment. But we really need to spend more dollars looking at how do we prevent this from happening in the first place. All right. We've got to take a quick break here. When we come back, we'll also be talking a little bit more about how we can normalize breasts. And there's actually something called the free the nipple movement. You're going to hear about that. Getting out my bed The reflect of the mirror Of my beautiful dress Raw, sweet and proud Like a summertime cherry It comes sounds funny But they want to talk with me Yeah, yeah, yeah Yeah, yeah, yeah I love my Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan and me, Kyone Wolf, or all four of us, you could say. Greg Hill appeared in the intro, and the part of Bill Curry was played by Mae West. Check us out on Facebook at the Colin McEnroe Show page. On tomorrow's show, we revisit our conversation about dinosaurs. And now, back to Colin. Yeah, really quickly, tomorrow, we did a terrific show from the Peabody about dinosaurs. Uh, we're going to uh, do that over for you because tomorrow night I'll be at Watkinson School talking about this election. Uh, it, we're doing a, a forum called Honey, I Broke the Democracy. Uh, it'll in the future me, a journalism professor, a journalist, Dan Har, uh, and uh, Ross Garber, who's been a Republican candidate uh, for a number of offices and is an all-around swell guy. So we, we hope to, that you'll come at Watkinson.org. You can check. Look for the Freshly School. Uh, that's the sort of the name of the series. Doesn't have anything to do with the breast show. I just wanted to be clear about that. Uh, it's the name of, the, of our series, and we'd love to have you there. There's a very lovely dinner beforehand, and I think there's still time to order tickets. All right, so that's why that's where I'm going to be tomorrow night. That's why there's a dinosaur show on tomorrow. We're talking about breasts right now with Florence Williams. Uh, Williams, her terrific book is Breasts: A Natural and Unnatural History. Uh, and in studio with me is Dr. Christine, Christine Risk, a breast surgeon, director of the Comprehensive Women's Health. Center at St. Francis Hospital and Medical Center. In just a second, you're going to meet Alina Esco, uh, actress, producer, activist, and director of the documentary Free the Nipple, and therefore the leader of the Free the Nipple movement. Uh, but before we do that, I think we have to finish up something that we sort of were two-thirds of the way through or halfway through, uh, and that is that whole question of uh, guidelines for mammogram screenings. And, and Dr. Christine Riss, this is something that's kind of a little bit all over the place right now in terms, I mean, once again, if I were a woman, I'd want to know uh, when I was going to get a mammogram, when I needed to get a mammogram, whether the insurance was going to pay for my mammogram. And I might not know any of those things for sure anyway. 
So I, I'm so glad that you're, you're raising this issue, Colin, and I very much want to get into it. Uh, but just real quick, if I might, um, I completely agreed with Florence's thought of prevention. And there is no question that prevention is absolutely the best medicine, um, hands down. And as far as what we can do from prevention, uh, from the preventative point of view, in certain select patients, we will af- actually offer them tamoxifen or other medications like Avista to actually prevent them from developing breast cancer. So I just wanted to throw that out there uh, to the to the public listening so that they were aware we do have at least some options uh, for prevention. Certainly going right into the screening issue, there's no question that mammograms save lives and that finding disease early definitely makes a difference as far as a woman's survival and and cure rate. No question if you can find it, um, you know, at a stage one, certainly she's going to do better than if you find it at a stage two or a stage three. That takes us right into the question and the issue that you're raising, Colin, which is, you know, when and where and what to do. And, you know, part of the confusion here, and women are confused and the healthcare providers are confused, everybody's confused, Um, about a year ago ago, the American Cancer Society uh, put out guidelines that changed from uh, starting at 40 and maintaining it every year in the average risk woman. And they then changed and said, well, actually, it should be 45. Women should start screening at 45. They should have this every year for about 10 years until they're about 54. And then they should get it every two years uh, thereafter, meaning from 55 on. And the the thing that is somewhat disturbing uh, is that for the ladies in the 40 to 44 range, they suggest that they, quote, be given the opportunity um, to have a mammogram. And that makes me really nervous because that totally opens up the door for the insurance companies to say, well, maybe we will and maybe we won't. And, 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 you know, that is really something I think that we need to talk about as a group and as a culture um, because that, and again, I, I'm not, well, I guess I sort of am uh, on my soapbox. I can't help but wonder if that uh, has some form of a political motive and agenda. Um, and I always think it's interesting that, you know, folks with, you know, Viagra, that's covered by your insurance, you know, hands down. But yet, you know, if you're somewhere between 40 and 44, well, your insurance may or may not cover it, depending on, I guess, the phase of the moon. All right. We could very easily do a whole show about all that. Um, but that was a nice uh, summing up in a nutshell of this. So at the beginning, we did talk a little bit about sort of the complex and occasionally weird uh, and, and quantification oriented relationship that uh, culture and pop culture and men and candidates for president have with breasts. Uh, so we're going to kind of come back there at the end with the, kind of the notion maybe of just normalizing breasts to treating them breasts and nipples as if they were perfectly normal things that people could see without any uh, permanent damage inflicted upon them. Uh, joining us is Lena Esco, actress, producer, activist, and director of Free the Nipple, and hence the uh, leader and launcher of a movement to indeed free the nipple. Uh, Lena Esco, welcome to the conversation we're having. Thank you for having me. So uh, the the whole idea of this, as I understand it, is that um, obviously uh, little boys and little girls, as they watch television growing up, they're going to see people shoot each other and people kill each other and people fall off cliffs and see all kinds of horrible things happen. Uh, and nobody frets about it too much. But if they see a nipple, you know, if they see a nipple at any time, uh, some horrible psychic scar may be inflicted upon them because nipples are dirty and dangerous and horrible. Uh, this is, I, I assume, the thing that you are trying to upturn i mean that's that's part of it but it's really it was the nipple was the trojan horse to talk about the much bigger dialogue which is gender equality that's the reason why we did it in the first place Mm -hmm. and i've said this before if i would have made a movie and a movement called equality nobody was going topless no one would be talking about this issue 
Uh, and yeah, partly is about, you know, if a man's topless, does that equal to nudity? If a woman's topless, does that equal to nudity? Being topless does not equal to nudity. It's the stigma that surrounds it and the amount of you know, the, the sexualization, the objectification that we have in women's bodies and how much money there is in, in hiding the nipple and that whole thing. So, uh, yeah, normalizing it. And before 1937, it was illegal, you know, for men in America to be topless. Um, and thank God for four men in, Co- in Coney Island that fought the law and it was passed. Obviously, the judge was a man and it was passed in 1936 and it was official in 1937. And right after that, Clark Gable was the first male actor like a year after that was that was topless in a movie and since then it's been normalized so we see a man topless we don't even you know look twice unless we're like super attracted to the guy but other than that it's it's normal and that's what's going on right now people you know it's a it's a it's a it's a movie it started as a movie and the movie kind of launched in 2013 the movie was shot in 2012 and the movie premiered in 2014 but the movement continues to grow, and, 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 and it's about the normalization of it. We're normalizing it, and, and you can see you know, certain celebrities starting to wear see-through tops to normalize it. Uh, so we're still in the shock value process. Uh, hopefully things will transcend and the way the men's movement happened after 1937. All right. Well, I wish we had more time to talk about this. Although, I mean, I guess uh, if you can give a short answer to this, I mean, the risk obviously is that celebrities wearing see-through t- tops sends the other message, right, that that women are their breasts. That, that's sort of the thing that you should be really excited about, about a woman. How do you make sure that that message doesn't get sent instead of the let's all treat this as a normal part of the human body thing? Well, I mean, there's there's no way to send a direct message unless if you're posting something like that, you're acknowledging it and, and saying, this is why I'm doing this, you know? Yeah. Um, you know, so it's the same thing. They ask me, what do you think about Kim Kardashian, you know, saying that she's not a part of Free the Nipple, but every day, all of a sudden, ever since Free the Nipple came out, she's wearing see-through tops. And I'm like, well, she's normalizing it because people are seeing nipples every single day. You know, I just saw an exam online uh, about women that cannot show how to, like, check themselves if they have breast cancer. That, so they have a man now doing it. Right. All <laughs> They're right. doing it in, a, in male breasts. I do have to cool. stop you here. I, I'm sorry we didn't have more time. I do think, by the way, it should be illegal for overweight guys to mow their lawns without wearing their shirts. I don't know. I hope that's an okay thing to say. Uh, I, don't th- I don't think anything's accomplished by that. Okay, we're going to check your vision. Can you read the top line? Dolly Parton. Next one down. Wonder Woman. Next line. Annette Funicello. Next line. Mm, Kate Moss. And the last one. Uh, Tilda Swinton. Great. You don't need glasses.